Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia and a leading cause of death among older adults. New medications may for the first time help slow the progression of the disease, but these new treatments rely on an early diagnosis. And dementia diagnoses in this country often comes late, sometimes years late. It's estimated that as many as half of all Americans who have Alzheimer's disease don't even know they have it. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come into the office, I've seen them first time, and I say, this is most likely Alzheimer's disease. And do you know what I get? I often get, thank you. I've been to five doctors and you're the first person who's willing to talk to me about this. I'm not sure whether they just didn't have enough training or if because I'm cogent, well-dressed, that they just couldn't imagine that I had Alzheimer's. Today on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine, we begin our series on the state of Alzheimer's care and treatment in America. My name is Joe Mamini. I'm 60 years old and I was diagnosed with younger onset Alzheimer's disease six years ago when I was 54 years old. So I was a market researcher who did presentations and analysis. And over time, there were some challenges. I found I was having to take work home to make up for decreasing productivity. In addition, I was having to take a lot more notes, which I never had to do before because the meetings, I couldn't remember what we talked about and I had a hard time following the conversations. My wife even noticed that I was having challenges multitasking at home. I've always been very handy and great at taking care of projects and doing stuff myself. Good example would be saying you want to replace the sink. And I've always been good at methodically going through and doing all the steps you need to do that. But there was one time I found that I was going to replace it and I was unloosing all the nuts and bolts. And as I was taken apart, the water comes squirting out. Well, I would have never forgot to turn the water off before doing something as obvious as, you know, and, and things like that were happening more frequently. All I'm thinking is, oh my God, I'm just forgetting these things because I'm getting older faster than I expected. Didn't even think about the fact that I could have Alzheimer's. I would mention these concerns to my primary care doctor, mentioned them numerous times on different occasions. I'd be like, you know, I have these challenges and I really feel that something's not right. He would ask me some basic questions, which are part of those initial assessments. And then he's like, Joe, you know, there's really nothing wrong with you. You're just getting older. So he kind of validated what I thought. And because I knew nothing about Alzheimer's, I believed him. And it was finally my wife. She's like, Joe, this is something different. Just the way you've changed pretty quickly and how significant it is, it's something more than that. And, and she's like, you got to push harder. Just have him have, send us to a neurologist. Let them do some testing. And she did a, a variety of different tests, a neuropsych test, an MRI, some other in-office testing. And when the results came back, she's like, you know, I'm pretty confident you have young girls at Alzheimer's. And she's like, I recommend you retire today. She's like, Joe, I can see in your brain where there's this cavity where your campus was. It's, it's down below 20%. She said, if it's declining rapidly, 
I can't tell you how much time you have to live, but I have a prognosis, which she gave us, and it was very gloomy. In general, Joe, you're likely going to start to see declines over the next three to five years. But then she's like, you may not recognize your family in five to seven years, and you have a life expectancy of about 10 years. And I went in there thinking she might just give me memory exercises, never expecting her to say, I may not recognize my family in five to seven years and I had a 10-year life expectancy. So that was as traumatic as it can be. She basically then said, there are treatments that can help you with your symptoms. And she said, aside from that, I need to work on getting my life in order before the disease worsens just so I can make sure I do what I want to do but she really did not provide any assistance on where to go for resources, support. But she did say, go to the Alzheimer's Association for help. When you've just been given this kind of a diagnosis and your head spinning, going to a website and trying to look for information without any direction on where specifically to go, what to do, having somebody to talk through it with was overwhelming. So we spent a couple of years just spinning, trying to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? The neurologist, she was focusing on how is the medical part of the deterioration going and treating the disease, but providing no support from a how do you deal with this perspective? How do you accept the diagnosis? Because you can't live and enjoy your life with this until you find ways to accept the disease and that you have it and that you're going to deal with it. And once you've done that, it actually makes living with it a lot more tolerable. What I would have loved to have had is some form of disease-related information, support services, letting me know where to go for assistance to help me navigate through this process was the one thing that I felt is absolutely needed and it was lacking. It was, it was not there. I tried to get into one of the monoclonal or disease modifying clinical trials and because my disease hadn't progressed enough i wasn't eligible to get into them i would love to be able to get access to the treatments because they would give me the potential opportunity to slow down the progression of this disease and even though it could be six months, nine months or a year any type of slowing down would be significant for me for a couple of reasons. One, it would give me the ability to, to spend more time with my family. I have two boys who often call and ask me for help at work. They just started their professional careers and I look forward to those calls and I worry that, you know, in a year or two, I may not be able to help them. Spending time with my wife. So little things that most people take for granted are things that I want to do. And it's amazing, just six or nine months or a year is significant to be able to enjoy some of that time that if I don't slow down the progression of disease, I may not be able to do that. And I'm willing to take the risk to see whether they work or not, because right now with the progression of Alzheimer's disease, I know where that progression of that disease is expected to go. The one thing this diagnosis has actually been good for me is you have a much, much clearer picture on what's important in life. Your friends, your family, most everything else really doesn't matter. Some of the things that are needed 
are for doctors to better understand what to look for because particularly with younger onset, you know, like for somebody like myself, they didn't even take me seriously because I think because of my age, they were very dismissive. We need to find a better way to make sure that people who are diagnosed with this disease and their care partners are connected with disease-related information, resources, support groups. Help them navigate through this extremely stressful and extremely challenging diagnosis from the beginning, from the time that they're told, because it's really hard when you start thinking about the impact to yourself and your family and your life and how everything you had planned has just been totally thrown in chaos. And when you're left on your own trying to deal with this. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Today, we're joined by Dr. Anna Chodos. She's an associate professor of medicine at University of California, San Francisco, and director of whole person geriatrics at San Francisco Health Network, and also Dr. Sharon Brangman. She's chair of geriatrics and director of the Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease at Upstate Medical University. So Dr. Brangman, I'd like to start with you. Tell us a little bit about your work. So I'm a geriatrician and I consider Alzheimer's disease kind of like a foundational disease because when patients have that, that impacts their hypertension, their diabetes, their everyday care needs. And so we are helping patients and families manage this complexity. And our mission is to set the standards for diagnosis, management, treatment, and probably just as importantly for education and training of the healthcare workforce. So we do a lot of outreach to practicing doctors, but also to medical students and nursing students and other learners who are learning not only geriatrics, but the principles and skill sets needed to make a diagnosis for Alzheimer's and other dementias and manage those diseases in in adults. And Dr. Anna Chodos, you are also a geriatrician. You run a dementia clinic at San Francisco General Hospital. Did you start your career focusing on dementia care? So my role as a geriatrician, particularly one focused on outpatient medicine, is to support primary care. That's really how I see my mission So I started out doing general geriatrics consults in our health network and then really gravitated to doing more and more dementia care because that was the thing that was really challenging for primary care to manage and just a looming need. So let's talk about reality here. Alzheimer's disease is a leading cause of death in older people and diagnosis is generally delayed by several years. Why is this happening? So first of all, there's always a lot of people who think that memory loss is a normal part of aging, and so they may not seek care for it. And that is one thing. The other thing is, is that there's always a stigma to someone who has a memory problem because it has been closely associated with mental health. And so any problems with the brain are considered senility or other terms that we have that aren't really nice when we talk about aging. So there's a big hesitancy 
in trying to identify somebody who has a memory problem. So part of it is part of our culture and our society's perception of aging and what's normal and what isn't. And then we have the next step, finding trained healthcare professionals who take these considerations seriously and know what to do. So I still have patients who come to me who told me that their primary care doctor told them years ago, oh, this is normal. What do you expect at your age? I forget things too. And so they don't take the complaints that someone might have about their memory seriously. So Dr. Chodos, what's been your experience? I would echo everything that Dr. Brangman just said. What I would add is there's additional reasons we're not properly diagnosing earlier on in the onset of symptoms. I think the thoroughness, the completeness of how to really do these assessments, how to differentiate between different diseases that might be causing a dementia syndrome. Those things are just not reinforced enough in training. And so I think if that's not within someone's skill set and they don't feel confident around those skills, they're going to avoid it. So a lot of catching up to do, especially compared to the overall burden of this condition. I just wanted to chime in because I think also a lot of primary care docs have such a cramped list of things that they have to cover when they see a patient. So many other topics. Memory loss takes a a considerable amount of time to sort out and listen and make sense of. And the model that we have right now for primary care in this country just doesn't allow for adequate time to do the workup. And then so many doctors feel there's a futility in working it up because it's essentially a a terminal illness. So why do you both think we've had this lack of training and lack of investment? Well, I think we need to step back a little bit and look at how we regard older people and aging in our culture and how the health system looks at older people and aging, and then look at geriatrics in general. So we are in a period of time where our demographics indicate that the fastest growing segment are those people who are 85 and older, and there is not enough training for basic geriatrics. You know, the curriculum is very tight and there's always new information, And we've seen geriatrics get squeezed out time after time. And I think this is a broader issue looking at ageism. And if we're dealing with a disease like Alzheimer's, which is a disease of aging, what does that really mean in terms of how we approach people with this disease? And across the board, there is a lack of focus in this regard. I fully agree with the comment on ageism that maybe. This has to do with the fact that really fundamentally, we don't value older people, particularly those that are frailer and sicker in our society. I think the other issue is we know we don't have a lot of geriatricians, and it's not a profession that's particularly of growing interest to trainees across the country. We don't really see our fellowship numbers growing. And as a result, you're going to have a lot of medical centers and educational programs and medical schools that don't have a geriatrician to even do the teaching. So what we hear about all the time and what we're trying to do in our program is create really efficient opportunities for training and for learning how to do dementia screening, dementia diagnosis, and ultimately dementia care. The other thing we 
really try to emphasize in this program is just how much you can do with or without new medications, with or without new diagnostics, which certainly will change the landscape, may make things feel more doable or more purposeful around dementia care. But there's so much we can do early on. And I think giving providers a sense that this is a very active condition. We should be doing a lot for people, not nothing, just because it's progressing. That's like every other condition. That's like diabetes. That's like COPD. We got this. You know, this is totally within our wheelhouse. So tell us more about what can be done to treat patients with dementia. I break it down into just a few domains that are the highest impact. Basically, we emphasize the bread and butter of primary care, which is to manage hypertension and diabetes. To manage those is to support brain health. But the other really big things that we start advising patients on and being really aggressive about are physical and social activity. Physical activity having a great effect on slowing progression and improving brain health. Removing medications that are dangerous to the brain, mostly those with anticholinergic properties. And the last one is hearing and vision. So if people are losing vision and losing hearing, it's a risk factor in accelerated cognitive decline. So screening for hearing loss and treating hearing loss. And then the care partner, caregiver, however people frame that. People's support systems end up becoming this foundational component to that person's health. And so starting to get your hands around, what is this person's support system? Who's in their life? What are they doing for them? How can I support that person? So a care partner becomes an actual part of your care plan. And it's a gateway to things like proper medical and legal planning early on. And finally, when people start having these symptoms, and ultimately, if we diagnose them with dementia, I increase my frequency of visits to monitor symptoms, to get these little things done, and to stay on top of them. Like, hey, did you manage to connect with a senior center? How did we do with visiting the hearing and speech center? Because I want to give the message that this is an active condition, that we're going to tackle this piece by piece. And it makes it more manageable if I have multiple visits. And that's in a specialty context. But I think the same hopefully might feel achievable for primary care if they could just break it up. And this is why early diagnosis is critical. Well, I think as Dr. Chodas just outlined, it allows the, the patient to participate in the discussion about what kind of care they want moving forward. Early diagnosis is also important because then you can be in planning and the caregiver can get educated and supported and we may be able to avert a crisis. But if you come in in a crisis, then we are in the middle of just finding the quickest and safest route and it may not necessarily be fulfilling what that patient or family's needs are. But the care that Dr. Chodas outlined is the kind of care that is given in most dementia centers or dementia-focused programs. And a lot of people can't access that kind of care. So this leads me to the new Alzheimer's medications, the monoclonal antibodies. There's evidence that these drugs may be able to slow the progression of the disease. Do you think they're a game changer? So I don't think we're quite ready for these medications in the sense that they are really geared towards preclinical, barely symptomatic of Alzheimer's disease. And there's so much evidence to say we are not detecting people at that stage. So we would really need to rethink how we approach this condition overall. 
on the ground, it's not very practical right now to use these medications. However, people are noticing that they're out there. They're intrigued. There's so much hope. Like, who does not want to see Alzheimer's disease be really stopped in its tracks if that were a possibility? Dr. Brangman? So I think that this drug requires a significant infrastructure that has not been developed yet. Now, the clinical trials for these anti-amyloid drugs ran for about 18 months, and we do not know how long someone actually needs treatment in real life. And part of this is going to be that anyone who gets these drugs is going to have to participate in a, a database so that we can start to learn real-world lessons on how these drugs are going to roll out over time because the clinical trials were so short. But my biggest concern is that there's already inequity in diagnosing and managing Alzheimer's disease. Most of the patients that I see that are African-American or Latino are often seen in at least moderate stage or when they start to have behaviors that the family can't manage. So we're looking with the anti-amyloid drugs to make the diagnosis almost before there's any clinical outward signs of the disease. And that's going to eliminate a significant number of people right away for all the reasons we discussed, including early detection and the lack of readiness to make that early diagnosis. The other thing that's going to be a big barrier is that it's going to have to be done in a complex academic healthcare environment because that's where you have neuroradiologists and infusion centers. These drugs are all going to be given through IV therapy, and this does not exist in small rural hospitals. It does not exist in doctor's offices. So I think we already see disparities in Alzheimer's disease diagnosis and management, and this is just going to be amplified because of the cost of the drug. There will be a copay for every visit to the infusion center to get the IV therapy to every MRI. And that out-of-pocket copay could be as much as $6,000. So that's going to eliminate many people who don't have that kind of discretionary cash sitting around from participating in this therapy. The other thing is, is that these drugs were not tested in broad groups of racial populations. There were very few African-Americans, Latino, and Asian patients in these clinical trials. So we don't even know what the amyloid role might be in people in different racial groups. Not that there's necessarily biological differences, but we don't know what the social determinants of health have in their role in, in increasing your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So my concern is that um, Medicare raised their premiums across the board, partially to help fund um, the cost of these drugs for every Medicare participant. So we have all older adults who are on Medicare contributing um, more to the premiums to help cover the cost of these drugs, when in actuality, there's only going to be a very small percentage of, of older people who are actually going to be good candidates for this therapy. And it's going to be up to geriatricians like us to help figure out who those people are that are best suited for this treatment. However, we all know that managing someone with Alzheimer's disease is much more than just writing a prescription. There are so many other pieces that come into play 
And my concern is that the focus will now be just on writing a prescription and we will forget all the other pieces that are needed to really properly take care of an older person with Alzheimer's disease. So it's important to note that Black and Hispanic patients are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's disease. Why is that? I suspect that there are other issues that come into play, such as the onset of hypertension and diabetes, chronic stress. We have information now that your physical environment can increase your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So people who live in areas with higher levels of air pollution may be at greater risk. So there are social determinants of health that we have not looked at as having a role in Alzheimer's disease. And the amyloid hypothesis, which is the basis for all of these medications, has been kind of the forefront in our research for the past 30 years. Sometimes I think to the detriment of looking at other possibilities and other hypotheses that might contribute to Alzheimer's disease over time. Dr. Chodas, you run a dementia clinic, and we know that comprehensive memory care is underfunded. Do you think there may be a silver lining that the focus on these new Alzheimer's medications could bring needed dollars to dementia care in the way, say, it does for cancer? I do hold out hope that if there is a shift in the standard of care and it requires a lot more resource investment, there's no way we can do that without also helping everybody else who's having cognitive decline. And I think there may be an upside in that we can serve people with other types of dementia. You know, my system, I'm so proud, is really focused on closing healthcare disparities in our Black patients. So as this drug gets rolled out, literally they have built in, as we've discussed, you know, they've really built in worsening disparities. And so I think that's a call to the rest of us in, in health systems that really care about addressing those disparities to make that a priority and put our money in our health systems where our priorities are in that regard. So I see the attention on this. I see the spotlight on this as potentially beneficial in the long term if we can be intentional about it and be intentional about closing those gaps. So the drugs certainly are exciting in the way that we are trying to tackle this horrible disease, but they create another system that is a huge challenge on how to administer them and how to do it in a way that isn't going to make the inequities that we already know about worse. Thank you both so very, very much. Well, thank you for inviting me and, and having this conversation that's so important for everyone. Thank you for having me. Dr. Anna Chodos is an associate professor of medicine at UCSF and director of whole person geriatrics at San Francisco Health Network. And Dr. Sharon Brangman, she's chair of geriatrics and director of the Center of Excellence for Alzheimer's Disease at Upstate Medical University. We had help from Dr. Abby Schubach and our managing editor, Deborah Molina. Our engineer is Mike Toda. Next time, new medications for Alzheimer's disease. Are we promising too much? He didn't really care about the side effects, or even if he died in the study, he said, you know, you got to die of something. As far as he was concerned, it would be great if he got the benefit of this medication. But the main thing was 
that he could help others. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum.